And open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. We're in a series, Strength for Today, Hope for Tomorrow, from Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, and uh, verse 1, and this is the Word of God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had delivered them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found in them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful that this is your word that is certain and it is true. So, Father, we need your help to understand it. Father, to grasp what you're saying here to us, Lord. Uh, many have looked at this passage across the centuries, Father, to struggle with it. So give us understanding by your spirit. Apply it to the way we think, the way we live, the way we hope. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's without question one of the most talked about, written about, discussed texts in the Bible. Uh, it's a text that raises a lot of questions that Bible scholars answer differently. Um, keep in mind we're talking about, on this case, sincere Bible-believing people who hold different views on this text. I'm quite sure uh, there are different views among us today. And that's okay, by the way. Not everyone's going to agree with how I see the passage. Um, though I think we're going to find the important areas where we do all agree. 
so there are three main views of this text, particularly these first three verses. Uh, and then within those three views, there are variations. Those of you who hold a premillennial perspective, uh, this is certainly a pivotal text. This is the only place in all of Scripture uh, where you have uh, the thousand-year reign mentioned in the Bible. And the premillennial view is that this is a literal thousand-year reign for Jesus after He returns at the second coming. Reigns for a thousand years. Then after His thousand years of reigning, the earth rebels against Him, led by Satan. There are those of the all-millennial perspective who believe what is described here is symbolic, that it's a symbolic thousand-year time reign, uh, and it reflects the time between the first uh, coming of Jesus in Bethlehem and His second coming at the end of the world. There are those who hold a post-millennial view. Uh, they see the kingdom of God is slowly coming today. They see things getting better and better that will move into a symbolic Again, final thousand-year reign of blessing. Now, let me talk about symbolism here. Throughout Revelation, we've understood numbers to be symbolic. And Revelation is filled with other symbols as well. Uh, everybody acknowledges that. Even here in chapters 19 and 20, for example, uh, we're told the dragon here is a symbol. It's a symbol of Satan. We're told there's a chain used. Now, if Satan is a spirit, chains aren't real effective on spirits. Let me just tell you that, uh, if you want to take it literally. And we're told in chapter 19, Jesus is riding a horse. We're told he has fire shooting out of his eyes and a, a sword coming out of his mouth. Uh, all those are symbolic. Gog and Magog, everybody tries to figure out what they represent. They're clearly symbolic. Babylon, we've seen as a symbol. And so, I would say to premillennialists who say, well, you've got to take the passage literally, is, well, no, nobody does. Nobody takes it literally. There is symbolism throughout it, and they would acknowledge that as well. And again, how one views the whole structure of Revelation does impact your view of chapter 20. For the premillennial, Revelation is linear, that is, every chapter from 4 to 22 is sequential, one after another. When one's finished, then the next one comes. Uh, that would mean that you would see that what we saw last week was the Great Tribulation and the Second Coming in chapter 19, and now chapter 20 would have to be sequential to that, uh, following after it. Postmonials would see much of what we read in Revelation as happening and already fulfilled by the year 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. On the other hand, as premillennials, we see Revelation as a series of seven cycles or descriptions of the same event, each giving some more light than the previous cycle. And so we would see chapter 20 as the last of the seven cycles. And the events described have already been described in Revelation. Go back to what we read in the, uh, the Declaration of Truth and read that description. It's, it describes the same things. And the final battle that we see in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, is described the exact same way in 16, 14 through 16, in 17, 14, and in 19, 11 through 21. In fact, in chapters 8, 16, 19, and 20, each time it's called the war or the battle with the, the definite article. Now, let me emphasize that what Revelation teaches, 20 teaches, that everybody agrees on, okay? And they are, in fact, the most important things. 
won God's triumphant yesterday and today and forever. Jesus wins. Everybody agrees on that. All right? Second, Satan is sentenced to hell where he joins his compatriots, the beast and the false prophet, to be punished for everybody with, forever and ever. Satan loses. Absolutely. And everybody agrees on that. Third, something we'll talk about more next week actually, but justice against all the evil in this world is carried out. All wrongs, all oppressions, all abuses are made right. All evil is addressed. And everybody agrees on that. Fourth, God's people are blessed, are saved, are resurrected, and are secure forever and ever. And everybody agrees on that. And those are the main points of the passage, all right? Uh, no matter which view we hold, though, there are some obvious questions. I would call them problematic questions. Let me hit three big ones. If we follow the all-millennial view, in what sense are, you, are we saying that Satan is bound today? Great question. Uh, if we follow the uh, premillennial view, and Jesus has a thousand-year reign on earth, uh, and he got rid of all the bad guys at the end of chapter 19, and he reigns for a thousand years, where do the bad guys come from then? All right? Where how they show up? And how, if everything else is a symbol, to decide the thousand years has to be literal? And if we follow the postmillennials. How, again, how does that great battle take place at the end if things have just gotten better and better with the kingdom coming? And those are all tough questions, and nobody has good answers, by the way, to those, but we'll have some. So how does, what are the answers to these and, and the last battle, and how does it help us? What's it mean for us? Let's go to the text and see. Let's begin with great news. All right, Satan is captured. Then I saw an angel coming from down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Okay, we're going to remember the context. In chapter 18... The great prostitute, Babylon, the city of man, was judged. In chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet are taken down and put in the lake of fire. So there's one last enemy on the loose, and that's Satan himself, the dragon. And humanity's not safe as long as Satan's on the loose. So John sees this angel, who is a spirit, by the way, and he's got a key to the abyss. Bottomless pits, bad translation, gives you the idea of somewhere that gets out of your reach. I uh, don't know what they were thinking. All right, so it should be abyss. Your footnotes suggest that uh, in your text. Um, the angel, a spirit, seizes Satan, a spirit, and chains him in the abyss, seals it up. So in some way, we're told, uh, he is restrained from deceiving the nations, literally the Gentiles, for a thousand years. So this is where we have to step back and ask ourselves some questions about the flow of human history. Why did Adam and Eve fall for a snake's lies in the garden? All right? After all, they were a king and a queen who could have ushered in a state of blessedness 
for all their descendants forever and ever. Why were they seemingly so easily deceived? And do you ever wonder why from the time of Abraham through the end of the Old Testament, there are so few converts among the nations? I mean, we can almost count them. There's Rahab, there's Ruth, maybe Naaman. Okay, the city of Nineveh during Jonah's day. That's about it. Why then, uh, Abraham was to be a blessing to the nations, why do so few people believe? And not a single nation. To be sure, Joseph made an impact in Egypt, uh, Daniel an impact in Babylon, but there was no gospel movement, no gospel advance. Why did the nation of Israel constantly rebel and stumble, beginning right after the Exodus, ultimately end up in exile? First the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom of Judah. So the gospel seems very much restrained in the Old Testament. Then suddenly the coming of Jesus, the nations begin to come to Jesus. The gospel marches out of Jerusalem and goes to the ends of the earth. And we know ultimately every nation on earth will be reached. Now what's the difference? Obviously one would say the coming of Jesus. Certainly the coming of the Holy Spirit would tell us why so many conversions would take place since his coming. But it also suggests that Satan operated far more freely before Bethlehem. And he was far more effective. He deceived Adam and Eve. That was no small feat. He blunted the impact of the promise to Abraham. He blinded the nations. He deceived God's chosen people to continually choose a path of rebellion. And then Jesus comes. Satan moves his efforts into high gear. He tries through Herod to kill the Christ child. He tries to tempt Jesus away from his ministry, and Jesus resists the temptation. Demonic activity rages during the time of Christ's ministry here on earth, but all to no avail. And quite frankly, since Christ came, since the cross, Satan has not been as effective as he was in the Old Testament. Oh, he's a roaring lion. He's active. But in some way, he's been bound. He's been limited. And that's what John's describing here for us. It's a symbolic description of his limitations. And as Satan is limited, we see the advance of the gospel. So this is a symbolic restraint on Satan. Again, how can you literally bind a spirit? Yet in some way, he is restrained from wreaking all the havoc he would like to. Jesus in Matthew 12, also in Mark 3, is talking about his ministry and Satan's ministry. And Jesus says this about Satan. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. So Jesus is saying there he came to bind the strong man. And the word for bind that he uses in the Gospels is the same as the word bind here in Revelation 20. In Luke 10, when the 72 go out on their mission, Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Go back to Revelation 12 where we saw Michael and the other angels battle Satan at the cross. And we're told they threw Satan out of heaven and down to earth. Then Jesus again in the Gospel of John, John 12. He says, now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Satan is cast out by Jesus. And now people are being saved by looking to the cross. And so Paul writes about God's actions in Colossians 2. Again, he's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's in Christ. So here would be the point. Satan in some way is bound through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, he's still active. But he's under control like he is in the book of Job, particularly. So the gospel has, the gospel will advance to the nations. And today, during the last days, which started with Jesus' ascension, Satan is unable, we're told, to deceive the elect among the peoples of the world, like he did Adam and Eve. He's unable to prevent people from being saved. And so God's church is being built. That should greatly encourage us. You say, what about that number 1,000? All right, if the binding of Satan is symbolic, then it's not unreasonable to say the number here is symbolic because all the other numbers in Revelation are symbolic. Ten and three are both ideal numbers. So here's your math class today, and there are absolute answers. Ten times ten times ten equals? One thousand. Very good. Uh, and, uh, and so it's used to represent the final time between Christ's coming and his second coming. So that's what's happening on earth. But what's happening in heaven then? Well, John sees that as well. What he sees answers the very pressing question the people of his day had. His readers had, what was happening to the people being killed for their faith? What happens to the believers who die? And he gives a very encouraging answer. They are reigning with Christ now. Pick it up in verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Same thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Keep that as a parenthetical comment. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what are we talking about? The martyrs and the other believers, those who stayed loyal to Jesus, they didn't take the mark of the beast, all right? They are, John says, very much alive, despite their physical dying. In fact, he says, they're the ones who have thrones, and they're reigning with Christ. And he says, this is the first resurrection. Believers in Christ are the first resurrection. He says, now the rest of the dead, the unbelievers, 
Well, they did not rise up to reign with him. That's that first part of verse 5, which, again, is a good parenthetical comment. It tells us what happened to unbelievers. By the way, the superstition of the first century was if you were beheaded, you had no part at all in the afterlife. Well, John refutes that here. And so the first resurrection is the immediate spiritual resurrection that believers have when they die and we begin to reign spiritually with Christ. It's what Paul means when he says, after the body is present with the Lord. Uh, Remember what Paul says to the Ephesians, that we are positionally, even now, reigning with Christ. So the good news for us who are believers is this, that second death, the eternal death that's yet to come, has no power over those who are part of the first resurrection, because we reign with Christ. But for unbelievers, theirs is a bodily death like ours, But then they have a second spiritual death, which is their eternal sentence to hell. So verses 4 to 6 are absolutely essential to assure God's people what's happened to those persecuted for their faith. And then John has some more incredibly good news for us. Verse 7, the defeat of Satan. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over a broad plain to the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, let me see if I can give you a good picture of all this. I used to reach out to a family here, uh, the husband of a family in our church. And they had a very mean dog that they kept chained to a tree in the front yard of their house. And no, it's none of you all, so don't look around the room. All right, it's none of you all. So, I did not fear going to their house because the dog was chained to the tree. And if you walked very carefully, you could make it to the front porch out of reach of the dog. Some of you all know about this. One day I took our then youth pastor, Danny McGill, with me to visit this family. We very carefully walked out of reach of the dog, and we were almost to the front porch when the chain broke. Oh, yeah. Next thing I know, I am pinned against the house by this dog, and Danny has run and jumped on the roof of my car. He's standing on the roof of my car with me pinned against the house. That's why we got rid of him. All right, now. No, just kidding, just kidding. So, so the dog's advancing, all right? And I think I'm about to be devoured. And just then, the front door opens, and out comes the man, and he gets the dog. And the dog doesn't get me. And just a footnote to the story, at a later encounter when the dog broke free, when the police went to the house, they shot and killed the dog. All right, just that, just that out to you. All right, that's Satan chained, restrained, and as long as he was chained and restrained to that tree, I could carry out the ministry and take the gospel to that house. All right, just out of his reach. But then one day he was released, um, and if it had not had outside intervention, I probably wouldn't be here today. All right. 
Okay? And when the outsider intervention came, the dog was restrained and defeated. What we saw back in verse 3, Satan would be restrained, released rather prior to Jesus' second coming. And the nations will rally to Satan because he will deceive them as he always does. And then the final battles in view here is the nations gather and they surround the people of God. And it doesn't look good for the people of God because the nations are like the sand of the sea. Satan's gathered massive opposition against the church. But just like we saw last week, as John describes how the battle lines are drawn, just like last week, suddenly the battle's over. And not a shot is fired. Fire comes down and, and, and destroys them. And God wins. And our great adversary, Satan, the devil, joins the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire, burning with sulfur. And Satan is sentenced to torment and suffering for all eternity. Do you say amen to that? I do. I get excited about that. All right. He loses. So when Satan is disposed of, we get to see the final judgment. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the, youth, uh, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now we're going to talk more about this next week, but for this week, just say this. Uh, what John sees. He sees everyone. Everyone who's ever lived. The great and the small. And they're standing before this, this throne. And the books are open. These are books that tell everything everyone's ever done. And everyone's being judged by what they've done. But here's the good news. We are not judged, ultimately, by what's written in those books of our deeds, of the things we've done. That's when another book is open. It's the book of life. And the book of life becomes the basis for the final judgment of all the dead. If anyone's name is not in the book of life, they are sentenced to the lake of fire, condemned by their own deeds. But don't miss this. We are not sentenced to the lake of fire because of our deeds. And that's God's mercy that we're not. But because our names are written in the book of life. And that's God's grace. Our works, our deeds would condemn us to the lake of fire. But God's grace, God's putting our name in His book of life, that's what gives us eternal life. And that, friends, is why Jesus said, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, that's our hope. So what about us? You know, no matter our view on this chapter, 
think we can affirm we agree on more than we disagree on. We can't agree there are a lot of symbols. We might disagree on what they precisely, uh, how we understand them. The view I've followed this morning, I think, does help us understand the flow of history better. Why the gospel did not penetrate the Old Testament world, but it does. Uh, since Christ come, the gospel is advanced and the kingdom is built. And we all agree the day's coming when Satan will be released again. Tough times are yet to be. So we do need strength for today. We do need hope for tomorrow. The certainty that no matter what happens to us, we will be with Jesus. We will reign with Jesus eternally, eternally. And we all agree Jesus is returning triumphantly. He's the king. And he shall reign forever and ever. And so Revelation 20 actually gives us strength. It gives us hope. Because it reminds us that even as the battle rages around us, we have hope because we know ultimately Satan loses. And that gives us the perspective then behind all the evil in our country, behind all the headlines. Though we have a very highly motivated rebel, a great deceiver, he himself is self-deceived. As we said last year, he's the one who came down to Georgia and he lost the fiddle contest because he's the ultimate loser. And his eternal future, like death itself, is the lake of fire. We also agree that for believers... For those whose name is in the book of life, there is eternal life. And so the question comes to our mind, how can I know my name's in the book of life? Because right now it's still closed. That book's closed. We can't see it. The only way to know my name is written in the book of life is to know that my trust is placed in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And if my trust is in Jesus' death and resurrection that it was for me, then I can know that my name is written there. And if your trust is in Jesus, you can know that your name is written there. And if your trust is not in Jesus today, uh, when we sing in a moment, come or see me after the service, because we'd be delighted, we'd be thrilled to share with you how you can know that your trust is in Jesus, and that your name is in his book of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit to help us understand it, Lord. And we know this is a challenging passage, Father, but uh, Lord, we're all in agreement on the reality of Christ's victory and Satan's loss. Father, that we should all have the desire to be, have our names written in the book of life. So Father, anybody doesn't have that certainty today, Lord, show them the cross, as we sang, where love and mercy meet, where the Son of God is stricken. Father, show them your love poured out there for the forgiveness of our sins. Now they can have hope and eternal life because of Christ. And Father, may we rejoice that the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.